We're going to go back to 1 Peter this morning. 1 Peter. And I knew there was an announcement I forgot to make, so let me make it right now. Next week, uh, we're going to begin taking an offering in our service like we used to before COVID. And so uh, we're going to need a few ushers for that. If Guys, if you're interested in serving as an usher in that way, it doesn't have to be every week, but if you can do that, if you would see Bill Lachlan today before you leave, just let him know you're interested, and then we'll get that coordinated uh, so we can t- take care of that next week. All right, First Peter. Uh, we started this last week in our study of First Peter. And when I told my wife that we I, we were starting this study, I said, I promise this is not going to be two years like Revelation was. Um, well, we'll see. You know, that's up to God. We'll, we'll go through this as he leads us. But I can tell you right now, we're probably not going to get very far this morning. But we're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We're still kind of in the introduction uh, of this letter that Peter's writing to believers And so let's read again. We'll start at uh, verse 1, chapter 1, and read down through verse 5 together. The Bible says here, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's take a minute of prayer before we get into our message this morning. Father, we have submitted ourselves now to your word. We have it open in front of us, and so we need your help as your spirit teaches us, as he guides us through this passage and teaches us the things that you want us to learn, Lord. I pray that you would bring out those things that are important, that you would embed upon our hearts the word of God that we need to hear, that we need to obey. And Lord, I need your help in preaching. I need your spirit, and so fill me with your spirit. Give me power and strength. Give me wisdom and give me the words to say so that you speak to us today through your word. And it's not just man's opinion. Lord, we submit ourselves to you during this time to do your work. And we thank you for what you're going to do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we started this letter of 1 Peter, and as Peter opens this letter, uh, we looked at the author in Peter, and we began to look at the recipients, and Peter defines his recipients in two words, with two specific words in these first two verses. We're going to focus mainly on verse 2 today, but last week, we looked at the first word in verse 1, the word he uses is strangers, to the strangers scattered about. And we saw what that word strangers entails. It means that we as believers don't belong to this earth. Our home is not here. We're just here temporarily. Our citizenship is somewhere else. In fact, our citizenship is not even on this earth. It's in heaven. And that's where our future home lies. And so this idea of being strangers or aliens on the earth as believers plays a big part in the comfort and the encouragement that Peter brings throughout this book. And that's why he starts with it. He wants them to understand, he wants us to understand, this is not our home. And because it's not our home, we have somewhere else to look forward to going. And that's where our focus needs to be, and we talked about that last week. And so with that perspective then, Peter encourages believers to continue on in the faith, trusting in the grace and power of our God as we endure through this life and even rejoice in sufferings. And if you look quickly down at verse 5, he encourages them right here at the introduction. He says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So he's telling them God has made you strangers on this earth. 
in saving you. Your home is not here. It's somewhere else. And as you go through this, this earthly life, you need to keep your focus on what is to come. And, and that's the, the message of the end of verse 5, ready to be revealed the last time. This is not all there is. We talk about being saved and trusting God and being believers and, and persevering through this life. And Peter says, this is not all there is to salvation. Okay? Your salvation is much more than what is just uh, being revealed now. Is this working? That's, uh, it's working. It's going on and off, isn't it? Okay. Let me grab another one here. All right, this has fresh batteries, so now I can go for two hours. All right. So what Peter is, is, uh, is stressing right here at the beginning of this message, uh, of, of this letter, is that believers are strangers, and we need to understand that because that sets the foundation for everything else that he's going to share in this book. And so it's an important part of how we see this letter, but it's an important part of how we see our lives as well. And then in verse 2, he uses another word, word to describe his, um, his recipients and the people that he's believing here. And it's the first word of the verse. It says elect. Now, the word elect here, Peter uses because he wants believers to know that their salvation that they've been given by God guarantees them this home. The word elect means chosen. So they've been chosen by God. They are guaranteed a future in God because he has chosen them to that. And that, that is this idea that he wants them to understand right away. So you're scattered, you're aliens, but God has selected you for a better future. God has selected you and chosen you to be with him in a future home in heaven apart from this earth. And so what happens on this earth in your earthly life is not really that important in the scope of eternity. Now, what you do with the life God has given you, that is important. But the circumstances, and he goes through this, the suffering especially, really are not that big compared to the glory that is to come and the blessing that is to come. And so that's why he stresses these words. You are aliens. You don't belong here. But God has chosen you. Now, the doctrine of election is probably one of the most controversial doctrines relating to salvation in all of Scripture. People have differing views on this. But regardless of how you define it, we can't deny that Scripture teaches this uh, idea of God's electing of people to salvation. Okay, Scripture is clear that in the salvation we have in Jesus Christ is accomplished because of God's work and his work alone. We can't work to get our salvation. Man can do nothing to accomplish the righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ. And as such, if God does the work and it is all of God's righteousness, then he gets all the glory for it. And that's what the Bible teaches us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace, that's God's grace, are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." And then Paul repeats that in Titus, in his letter to Titus in chapter 3, verse 5. He says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So Peter chooses this word elect to tell us um, what we are in God's sight. We are chosen by him for this blessing of salvation. And he stresses, and he stresses as well as Paul, especially in his writings, that it doesn't come by works. We can't earn it. It is only the work of God that can give us salvation and eternal life, and there's nothing that we can do to earn it. Now, he says, and that's why he chooses this word, elect, selected, or chosen by God for salvation. But in this verse 2, he, he uh, conditions this with another phrase. And if you look at what he starts with, he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So this word elect is qualified by this phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God. And it's important that we look beyond just the word elect to understand what Peter is saying here. 
It's the phrase, according to God's foreknowledge, that conditions this election. And it's that phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God, that I want to focus on this morning. Okay? Let's go back to the word elect for just a minute. And I said the definition of the word elect is to be chosen or selected by God for a specific or special purpose. This word elect in the Hebrew was used many times in the Old Testament. And it's most of the time it's interpreted as chosen. God has chosen people, remember, but it's applied to Israel. All through the Old Testament, we read about Israel as God's chosen people. Okay, we have a guest minister coming in March, and he comes from a ministry called Chosen People Ministries. He has a ministry to Jews, and he tries to show the Jews through the scriptures how the Messiah or Jesus is the promised Messiah that they're looking for, how the New Testament church is kind of the culmination in Christ of all of the message of the Old Testament, that Jesus Christ is kind of the the broad picture of it all. Okay, so chosen is is applied to Israel all through the Old Testament. It's the same word. In fact, in Isaiah 45.4, the prophet says, For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by name, I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. So the word elect there is actually applied to Israel. In Isaiah 65, it's the same thing. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat, for as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Talking about the millennial kingdom and how the Jews are going to receive all the fullness of the blessings Uh, from the promises that God gave Abraham way back in the Old Testament. But he calls them elect. So Peter uses this word and he applies it to the church. We are chosen by God for a specific purpose. But he says we're chosen according to God's foreknowledge. So there's a condition there. The definition of foreknowledge is to know beforehand. I mean, that's pretty clear if you just look at the word foreknowledge. Knowledge, to know beforehand. That's literally what it means. And this word is used here and one other place in Scripture to help us as humans understand God's working through time in our perspective. Now, I have to explain this because for God, there's no such thing as foreknowledge. This is from our perspective that God saw beforehand. Okay? In God... There is no time. God does not have a before or an after or a present. God exists. Remember what he told Moses when Moses said, who do I say sent me when I go to the Israelites? And God said, tell them, I am sent you. That was a statement of God's eternal existence. It's not that God continues to live through time. God does not get older. He was never younger God exists, and he stated that in that name, I am. And so we have to understand that God does not exist in time. In fact, time exists in God. C.S. Lewis explained it this way. I think this is a great illustration. He said, if you think of eternity as a piece of paper, and if you draw a line on a piece of paper, there is the length of time from the beginning of creation to the end of time. And then our lives are just basically little dots along that line someplace. So there is all of human history and all of time exhibited in that line. God is the paper. So that line exists in God. God does not exist on that line. So God does not exist in history. In fact, if you look at it this way, and this is hard to comprehend, God looks down at history and sees all of it at the same time because he is present in all of it at the same time. Now, we try to understand this idea of God being omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time. His presence exists everywhere in creation. Try to translate that into time. God is in every moment of time from beginning before creation to eternity, future, and he is there now. Everything to God is now. 
And so we have to understand that fact as we look at this word foreknowledge. That's for our understanding. God is not looking backwards in time. God is not looking forwards in time. God is just looking at all of time, all people, all at the same time. Everything that happens for God is present. Now, that blows our minds because we exist in time and we can't understand what it means to exist outside of time. But that is God. And so Peter uses this word foreknowledge to help us understand a little bit from our perspective. It seems like from where we are now, God looked back and knows what happened before. Or he looks forward and knows what will happen in the future. And this foreknowledge means God was, well, we were here, but God knows what's going to happen in the future to us. So God knows already because he looks forward. So God in his foreknowledge, then knows who is going to be saved. And God knows all believers from before creation, before we were even born, before the world was even created, God knew us. God knew what we would do. God knew the choices we would make. God knew all of the events and the circumstances of our life. That's God's foreknowledge. So with salvation, and I, and I love to put it this way, It's not about when you get saved. It's about if you are saved. God looks at our entire life as one big piece. And so he's not counting the days down to the day that you get saved. He's not looking back at the time you got saved. God is looking you either as a believer or an unbeliever because he sees your whole life all at once. And that is part of God's foreknowledge. It's not about when we get saved. When I was growing up, it seemed like there were some people and pastors that made this huge deal about your spiritual birthday. You have to know the exact day you got saved, and you write it in your Bible, and you celebrate that. I'm not denigrating that in any way or saying that's a bad thing. Okay, it's a great thing to remember. I don't know. I don't remember the day I got saved. I remember the circumstances. I remember praying. I remember receiving the Lord Jesus, but I couldn't tell you the date. I was about seven years old, but I know I'm saved. And that's the way God looks at it. He's not concerned about the date. He's concerned, are you saved or not? And he sees all of that at once. So God looks at us in his foreknowledge and says, are they a believer or are they not a believer? And so that brings us to this question, when we look at the condition of God's election, what is it that God knows about us that makes him choose us to salvation? What in his foreknowledge causes that election? Now, I'm going to give you one perspective, and this comes from what's called a Reformed Calvinist viewpoint. And basically, they will say that God chose specific people for salvation based solely on his good pleasure with nothing else in consideration. Now, I can agree with that to a point because God is sovereign, and God has that choice, and he can make that choice all on his own. So I'm not taking that ability away from him or that choice away from him. And that's how they interpret the beginning of verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God chose certain people to be saved. God chose other people that they would not be saved. And so they say God, in his goodwill and pleasure, before creation, selected certain people throughout all history who would receive eternal life without any external influence at all on his choice. And this ideology is termed unconditional election if you go and study the five tenets of Calvinism, that God chose people based on his choice alone and you had no uh, participation or nothing to say about that at all. Now, I have two issues with this statement biblically. Number one, first of all, they're equating God's election of Israel as being exactly the same as God's election of the people in the church, people to salvation. Okay, Paul uses the analogy in his epistles, and so there is some similarity there. But what you read in the Old Testament is that God's selection of Abraham was absolutely unconditional. He called Abraham, follow me, and Abraham followed him. Okay. Now, in a sense, he does that for us as well. But as you read through the Old Testament, the election of Israel is never conditioned upon anything. But when you read in the New Testament, the election of the church and believers in the New Testament church is always conditioned upon faith. 
And we see that here even. It says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. Remember, James tells us, faith without works is dead. And so obedience is that exhibition of faith. If you read just about every passage in Scripture that talks about our election, I'm talking about the New Testament, it is conditioned upon the foreknowledge of God and faith. Salvation comes by faith through grace. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us. So the first one is, even though the picture of election and God's election and his foreknowledge and in his sovereignty is the same, there's the condition of faith in the New Testament for believers. The second problem with unconditional election is that it implies that God in no way ever responds to man. And I've talked to people who believe that in God's sovereignty, God controls everything you do and you have no choice about it. I don't agree with that. And I don't agree with that in salvation as well. Okay, I told you about a pastor that I was familiar with, and he wrote an article in a website that I was maintaining for his organization. And in, according to God's sovereignty, he said, uh, as an example, he was walking down the street one day. He was overweight. He knew he shouldn't be eating ice cream, but he went by a Baskin-Robbins. And in his words, the Holy Spirit turned his shoulders and pushed him through the door and pushed him up to the counter and then squeezed his cheeks together and said, pralines and cream, please. And he had no way that he could ever stop from doing that. And I thought, that is absolutely not what the sovereignty of God looks like. That's not what the Bible teaches us. And so we can't just say, in unconditional election, that God chooses people to be saved. Yes, he does, but there's conditions upon his foreknowledge. So we have to ask that question. What is it that God knows that causes him to choose? What is it about those people that causes God to choose them and elect them to salvation? Because foreknowledge is the condition, and Peter makes that very clear here. So like I said, Unconditional election makes it seem like God does not respond to man. And yet, all through Scripture, we have, in fact, the entire account of Scripture is God's response to man, is it not? We start with Adam and Eve, God's creation of Adam and Eve. They sinned. God kicks them out of the garden, and then immediately in chapter 3, he says, okay, you've messed it up, you've broken the communion we've had with you but I'm going to provide a redeemer. That's God's response. In fact, if you look at the plan of salvation itself, the entire plan of salvation through Jesus Christ is conditioned upon God's response to man's need. And I'm not saying this is God's plan B. It's not like God made Adam and Eve, and then he, oh, Adam, you messed up. Now i got to come up with plan B. Okay? Again, God in his foreknowledge before creation knew all of what would happen. He knew Adam would sin. He made him anyway. And when he made them, he already had the plan in place for Jesus Christ to come as the Redeemer to redeem sinful man. So that's God's foreknowledge. So salvation in Jesus Christ was God's only plan according to his foreknowledge. He responded to us and planned his whole entire plan based on what we would need before any of it came into being. And when we talk about God's sovereignty, God's foreknowledge, God's omnipotence, God's omniscience, I mean, all of that plays into this. But it's God's response. So to say that God chose some to salvation apart from everything else is also to say that God has to choose some for eternal judgment apart from anything else. So eternal judgment of millions, billions, through history, then has to be according to God's election. But John 3.18 says this, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is is not, I'm sorry, he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What that verse does not say is, He that believeth not is condemned because God chose it that way. It says, He that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There's a condition there. 
And by the way, that's Jesus talking. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, the prophet says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn away from his way and live. That's God speaking. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Now, that doesn't sound like God selected people for judgment based on nothing else but his pleasure. In fact, God says he finds no pleasure in judging the wicked. And so to say God selected certain people based on his good pleasure to go to hell, I don't believe is biblical. Because it's not God's pleasure to send people to hell. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, I just quoted this, but I'm going to read it again. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. This verse says that we are saved through faith. There's the condition, through the belief of our heart in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. Romans, Paul goes on in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. It doesn't say whoever God chooses shall not be ashamed. It says whoever believes shall not be ashamed. Now, as I mentioned before, there's a Reformed Calvinist viewpoint that says, no, it's unconditional election. And they will interpret the verse here um, in verse 8 of of Ephesians chapter 2, and for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. They say, well, the gift is the faith. God even gives you the faith. I have a lot of problem with that because if you study Greek, just grammatically, that's not what it's saying. The context of the passage is talking about salvation, Everywhere in Scripture, salvation is talked about as the gift of God. And if you look at the grammar structure, there's something called an antecedent to a pronoun, okay? When this says, it is the gift of God, it is the pronoun, the antecedent has to match the pronoun. They say the antecedent is faith. Well, it can't happen that way because there's something called gender in Greek, and the genders don't match. So it can't be talking about faith It is a neutral gender. It's talking about the broader topic of salvation. So that's not the way to interpret that verse to say faith is the gift. Salvation is the gift, and it comes through faith. That's the condition. So then we have to ask the question, where does faith originate? Where does the faith come from? Romans chapter 10, verse 17 answers that. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Remember, Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And he follows that up here in chapter 10 by saying, faith comes by hearing that gospel. Faith is the response to the gospel. Specifically, the gospel message of Jesus Christ as our Savior. So I want to say this, the opportunity for salvation and each and every person who has ever lived begins with a presentation of God's truth. And the truth is, we are lost in our sin. We can't save ourselves. We need a Redeemer to save us. It starts there. Without that message, there is no salvation. Paul said that. It is the power of God unto salvation. So every person, and in Romans 1, Paul says they've all been exposed to this, they've all seen it, they've all heard it, so they're without excuse. So every person, once that truth has been declared and we understand the truth of our situation before God and what God has done to intervene to make that reconciliation possible and provide forgiveness for our sins, once we hear that truth, then we have to make a decision. And the decision is not, well, I guess I want to be saved, or I guess I don't want to be saved. The response is, am I going to submit to that truth, am I going to rebel against it? Will I accept the truth from God, submitting to his authority and speaking this truth about me, 
Or am I going to continue to rebel against him, trying to earn my way to heaven because I think I'm a good person? Those are the only responses we can give. Now, some will say, well, if you have a choice in it, then that's a work. Isn't it? We're doing the work of getting ourselves saved because we're choosing that, and therefore it can't be true salvation because the Bible's clear. And I agree, salvation is not by works. So do we just choose to be saved then? Is it our choice, really? Peter says, it's not our choice, it's God's choice. But there's a condition, it's God's foreknowledge. Remember, Ephesians 2.9 does say, salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So it's very clear, it's not about us. And it's not our choice. But I want to make this point when the Bible and when Paul specifically talks about salvation does not come by works. Remember, he's talking a lot to Jewish Christians who are relying on their keeping the law to make them righteous. So that's a big part of it. Keeping the law will not save you. But if we translate that into our modern day and to what we would call our Gentile mindset, We're not concerned about the Old Testament law. So what's the modern mindset? I got to be a good person. I got to do good things. I got to go to church. I got to pray. I got to read my Bible. Those are the things that a Christian does, and those are the things that will make me a believer. And Paul says, nope, that ain't going to work either. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So when we say just blandly, well, it's our choice, not fully. The power of God is the one that saves us. God is the one that has provided the way. God has done all the work necessary. So what is up to us? I mean, it's clear that we can't earn salvation. We can't work to get it. We can't work our way to heaven. Romans 3 says that. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none that understand it. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So we can't get there by choice or by works. So I'm not advocating at all that we have to do something to gain salvation. But the Bible does say in Ephesians 2.8 that salvation is through faith. And so what does that mean? And I think we have to understand that faith because there's the foreknowledge, I believe, that God sees that faith in people. And faith, then, is the key that opens the door to salvation, not works. In Romans 10.9, as I already read to you, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus... And believe in thine heart, there's the faith that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's a definite condition upon faith. But if you go to verse 9 of Romans chapter 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, that's the King James Version. If you look at other versions, it reads this way, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord, Master, my Master, I'm not in control of my life. I can't fix myself. I can't save myself. I have to submit to his, him as master. Verse says that, if thou shalt confess that Jesus is Lord. And so I think faith really comes down to not just assenting to the truth of something, the key is surrender. Because we never surrender to the authority of God's word and what God says about us. If we never surrender ourselves to the fact that he is God, that he is in control of everything, including our salvation, then there's no true faith. We can't just say that we believe and we're saved, okay? Now, I know many scriptures say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. 
But as you read through Scripture, Jesus says there's many who will come to him at the last time saying, Lord, we believe we did all these things in your name. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says there will, people, there will be people who come to me and say, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7, he said, Lord, Lord, I did healings and miracles. I mean, we think of those and we go, man, that has to be somebody who's following Christ with the power of God. We healed people. We did miracles in your name. We prophesied in your name. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, I'm going to look at them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. It's not about the works. It's not about what we think and what we say. Faith comes down to absolute surrender. Have I surrendered myself to God's authority? Have I surrendered myself to the truth of his word and what it says about me? James chapter 2, verse 19. James says, Thou believest that there's one God, you do well. But remember, the devils believe and tremble. The devils believe there is one God. They know it. They were there. The devils and Satan know and understand God's truth. They don't doubt what Scripture says. They know that as Scripture prophesies their eternal punishment and doom, that is going to happen. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, the Gospels tell us that on several occasions Jesus was casting out demons and they refer to him as the Son of God. The problem is they do not surrender to his authority. That's what got Satan thrown out of heaven in the first place. It's about surrender. And that's why Satan has continued to try to thwart God's plan of salvation throughout the extent of human history, because he does not and will not surrender to God's authority. His pride has elevated him in his mind above God. And that's exactly the same mindset that keeps us from ever enjoying salvation, because we do not surrender. And so the key to saving faith is that we must surrender to the truth of God's authority over us and his plan of salvation and let God do his work in us to make us a new creature. We can't choose that. God has to do that. Romans chapter 10, verse 16 talks about people who are unsaved. And Paul says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah has said, Lord, who hath believed our report? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you surrender, you obey. We teach our kids to surrender to the authority of their parents so they will obey us. We learn in Scripture that we are to surrender to the authority of God so that we obey him. And Paul uses this phrase, they don't obey the gospel of our Lord. They have not surrendered to him as Lord. First Peter, our, our, our author here, later in this same book in chapter 4, verse 17, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first began at us, what shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God? In all of those verses, it basically says that those who are not saved did not obey the gospel, and to obey is to surrender. John, I'm sorry, the question then is posed this way. Is surrendering a work that we have to do? I would have to say the answer is no. And this takes out of the whole picture works, Okay when you understand what it means to surrender. To surrender is the mindset of accepting that we can do nothing to earn salvation. We can do nothing to save ourselves. Nothing. And we must let God do his work in us as only he can. Salvation is not about us. It's all about God. It comes from God. And so salvation starts with surrendering. For John chapter 1, verse 12 through 13, But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Verse 13 goes on, Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, 
nor of the will of man, but of God. And well, people will ask, well, what about that verse when it says it's not about our will? So it's not even our choice. And that's the way they interpret that. Isn't that mean surrendering, since it's our choice, is part of our will? Well, no, I don't think you understand surrender then. Because when you surrender, you give up your will. It's gone. You don't get to make the, sh- the choices anymore. You don't get to call the shots anymore. When you're taken as a prisoner and you surrender, you do what the people say that are arresting you. You have no choices at that point, and you have no will that you can exert. And it's the same in salvation. It's not about our choice anymore. It's not about our will. It's not about our works. I give it all up, God. I can't do it. I give up what I want, in fact, because I can't make it happen. We surrender our will. See, our fleshly will will always cause us to chew what's, what I think is best for me, but it's based on my personal desires. Before we're saved, the Bible's very clear, we don't make a personal choice to seek after righteousness. Can't happen. We have a sin nature in us. And so it always causes us to seek something that pleases myself, regardless if, if it pleases God or not. I, I don't care. It pleases me, so that's all that matters. That's the fleshly will. But when we come to Christ in salvation, we're literally saying, okay, Lord, I'm giving up that will. It's not about my choice anymore. Is it ever the will of our flesh to surrender to God? The answer is no. Paul makes that clear in Romans 8. In verse 7, he says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. See, there's the idea of surrender. It is not surrendered to God's will. And so when we surrender to Christ in salvation, in faith, all right, God, I can't do it. I'm giving up everything I want. I have no expectations at this point for you. I'm yours. Whatever you want, whatever you do, I'll accept. That's the attitude of faith. That's the attitude of surrender. So it's our flesh that causes, and the will of our flesh that causes us to sin in the first place. And it puts us at a place of enmity with God, and the only place, and the only way that can be reconciled is to surrender our will. It's not about the will of man or the will of flesh, it's surrendering our will to God. And that's the essence of faith. That's why Peter says later in this book, in chapter 4, verse 2, that the believer says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Because that's what we surrendered to. So saving faith is then a response of surrender to the truth of the gospel and to the power of God for him to make us what we cannot make ourselves. It's all God's work. It's a giving up of our will to surrender to God's will. Now, here's an illustration people will use in salvation. They'll say, here's the picture. It's like, as a sinner, we're drowning in an ocean of sin. And we can't save ourselves. We can't swim to shore. We're utterly helpless. We're about to go under for the last time. And Jesus is standing on shore, and he throws us a life preserver. And he says, if you'll just grab onto the life preserver, I'll pull you to shore. Now, I have a problem with that illustration because if we're grabbing onto that life preserver, then we're working. We're doing something to earn that salvation. Now, I took first aid and safety. Part of that was introductory uh, introductory to lifeguarding and water safety. And what they tell you as a lifeguard, first rule, if you see somebody drowning, do not try to pull them to shore while they're still kicking and screaming because they'll pull you under. The best time to save a drowning person is when they give up. And that's the picture I think is better We're drowning in an ocean of sin. We can't save ourselves. We're about to go under. And Jesus swims out there in the sin to be with us. That's what John 1 said. And he stands there and he says, if you will give up fighting, if you stop trying to save yourself, I'll pull you to shore. That's the picture of salvation. 
And that's what it means to surrender to him. He gets, he, he does all the work. He gets all the glory. It's not about us at all at that point. We were the ones drowning. Jesus is the Savior. And so all of this is just to help us to understand what it means to truly be saved by faith. And with that established, then we have to come back to verse 2 in 1 Peter 1, when he says, we are chosen by God to salvation according to his foreknowledge. We have to ask that question again, his foreknowledge of what? And I believe the answer to be his foreknowledge of those who would surrender. Not work, not choose, surrender. Now, Reformed Calvinists will argue against this premise tooth and nail. I've had those discussions on multiple occasions. And they argue, well, if that's true, then we had a hand in our salvation. And then we can claim some of the credit. But as I already pointed out, surrendering is giving up everything. It's giving up our efforts. It's giving up even our will. But I think that part of it is what many people who even call themselves believers have missed. It's not just saying, yeah, I believe. Jesus died for me. My sins are covered. Amen. Okay, now I can go live my life the way I want to because I'm saved and I got my free ticket to heaven. Jesus didn't describe salvation like that. He says, if you are going to be my disciple, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. So I've asked many Calvinists this question. What's the foreknowledge based on? What is it that God knew? I believe it's those who surrender. And then I ask this question. Is it possible? I'm not saying is it absolute or is it definite, but is it possible that God's election of people to salvation could be based on God's knowledge of who those are that surrender to him? Is it possible? And they'll say, no, 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 it's all because of God's good pleasure. Okay, I agree, it's according to God's good pleasure. And Hebrews eleven six tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Which means God is pleased with those who surrender. There's enough scripture, I believe, to see that God's foreknowledge that caused him to elect us to salvation is based on those he knows are surrendered. Now, he doesn't wait for us to do that. He knows. That's his foreknowledge, his omniscience. And he's just looking for those in whom true faith exists because they've surrendered to the truth of who they are, of who God's authority is, and his plan to save people. Is everybody going to get saved? No. We already know that if you read the Bible. Jesus said there's going to be many who try to earn their way to heaven on the broad way of human works and trying to earn God's favor by being a good person in this life and doing good deeds. That's the broad way, and that leads to hell. But only a very few, Jesus said, will surrender to the narrow way of salvation that only comes through faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. A very few. Because ultimately, God knows there are very few, comparatively to all of the human population through history, that will surrender to him. And so my question is this. Are you relying on your own good works, on your choice, and your efforts for your salvation to get you to heaven? Or have you truly surrendered your life, everything, in faith to Jesus Christ? He's the only one that can save you, and it only comes with full surrender. Now, just because we fully surrender doesn't mean we never do any wrong anymore. That's a work that God continues to do. In fact, he says that in verse 2 in 1 Peter. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit. That's the continuing work that God will do to cleanse us from sin, to keep us in the path of holiness, and eventually perfect us when we get to heaven. But that's not up to us. Our holiness is up to God and the work that he does in us. What's up to us is, are we willing to surrender? 
to let God do His work in us, to let God work through us, to give our whole life to accomplish His will. Like Jesus said, not my will be done, but thine. If you haven't surrendered that work, I'm sorry, if you haven't surrendered to the work that only Jesus can do in making you fit for heaven, then I wouldn't wait another day. That is the most important question you will ever have to ask yourself or answer in your life. Because the answer to that question is the answer to whether you will be in heaven or not. Jesus said, today is the day of salvation. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus that he is Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and thou shalt be saved. There's no reason why any one of us needs to wait another day to find out or to know that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Are you elect? Because you surrender to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you know hearts here of every person. You know the minds, you know our lives, and you know our will. And you know each one of us, whether we've truly surrendered to you for salvation, for you to do your work in us, not for us to define salvation for ourselves and make it what we want to be, but to surrender ourselves to you as our Savior so that you can cleanse us, you can put your Spirit in us, so that he can make us holy and in the image of Jesus Christ. But, Lord, I pray that you would teach us to surrender. And, Lord, help us to know that surrender is not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong attitude. It starts with salvation. It continues on. And through that surrender, you can do great work in us that becomes the work that comes out of our faith. So, Lord, thank you for giving us this lesson today. I pray that you would embed it in our hearts, convict those who need to hear it, convict all of us, as we continue to walk each day to make sure that we are one of your elect according to your foreknowledge. And because it's in your power and it's your work that does it all, we'll give you all the glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close in prayer.